Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. M-S-W Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, June 22nd, 2023. Today, day two of John Eastman's disbarment hearings heats up with testimony from Pence lawyer Greg Jacob. House Republicans shot themselves in the foot in the John Durham hearing today. The rioter that drove a stun gun into Officer Fanon's neck gets 12 and a half years in prison. Justice Alito took a luxury fishing trip with a billionaire that had cases before the court. A DeSantis donor provided lavish gifts to the Florida governor. And Marjorie Taylor Greene called Lauren Boebert a little bitch on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. I'm Allison Gill. <laughs> and I'm Dana Goldberg. <laughs> Dana, you know I gave that story to you, right? <laughs> oh, man, it's just so good. I, I just, the Lord of the Flies version of this House of Representatives is my favorite. Uh, it's it's so disrespectful. Like I've said so many times, I, like I'm on the fence between disrespect to the institution and just the absolute clown show. It, it, um, they're just only, they're just doing damage to themselves. Uh, the Durham testimony today, absolutely ridiculous. Matt Gates got up and was like, you're a pile of shit. You didn't do anything. I hate you. Like, he was just totally digging into Durham. And Durham's like, whoa, I thought you were on my side, bro. It was just 
really interesting to watch. We get to see those clips on Twitter from ACYN. He posts them. Aaron Rupar posts them. Oh, yeah. Uh, I I recommend you go check out those clips. We're going to cover it in detail on next week's Cleanup on Aisle 45 pod with Pete Strzok, who was mentioned multiple times today in that testimony. So we're going to go over that. I want to sort of save that for for him. And, we, you know, we'll do we'll talk about it on the bonus episode this weekend. I'm sure there'll be lots of swearing. Um, if you are a patron of Cleanup on Aisle 45, you can hear that bonus episode. Later today, I will speak to independent journalist Megan Cuniff, who is covering the Eastman disbarment hearing. She's going to tell us in the interview today what went down uh, yesterday and today. So far, it's really not looking good for John Eastman. So, But, you know, you really kind of have to steal from a client like Avenatti did to be disbarred. So we'll, we'll see how they come down here in California. Yeah, it will be interesting. But I agree. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's like tenure. It takes a murder. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it for you. And Megan's going to give us a lot of information later in the show. All right, we have a ton of news to get to. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, first up from Elliot Kaplan and Majerski at ProPublica. In early July 2008, Alito, Samuel Alito, stood on a riverbank in a remote corner of Alaska. The Supreme Court justice was on vacation at a luxury fishing lodge that charged more than $1,000 a day And after catching a king salmon nearly the size of his leg, Alito posed for a picture. To his left, a man stood beaming. Paul Singer, a hedge fund billionaire who has repeatedly asked the Supreme Court to rule in his favor in high-stakes business disputes. Singer was more than a fellow angler. He flew Alito to Alaska on a private jet. If the justice chartered the plane himself, the cost could have exceeded $100,000 one way. Wish he would have stayed in Alaska. (laughs) In the years that followed, Singer's hedge fund came before the court at least 10 times in cases where his role was often covered by the legal press and mainstream media. In 2014, the court agreed to resolve a key issue in a decade-long battle between Singer's hedge fund and the nation of Argentina. Alito did not recuse himself from the case and voted with the 7-1 majority in Singer's favor. The hedge fund was ultimately paid 2.4% billion dollars. Ooh, that was a fishing trip that paid off. Mm. Alito did not report the 2008 fishing trip on his annual financial disclosures. By failing to disclose the private jet flight Singer provided, Alito appears to have violated a federal law that requires justices to disclose those gifts according to an ethics law expert, multiple ethics law experts, actually. Experts say they could not identify any instance of a justice ruling on a case after receiving an expensive gift paid for by one of the parties. Quote, if you were good friends, what were you doing ruling on his case? That was Charles Gay, an Indiana University law professor and leading expert on recusals. And if you weren't good friends, what were you doing accepting this gift? Referring to the flight on the private jet. Both very good questions. (laughs) Mm, Yes. Mm. ProPublica's investigation sheds new light on how luxury travel has given prominent political donors, including ones who have had cases before the Supreme Court, intimate access to the most powerful judges in the country. Another wealthy businessman provided expensive vacations to two members of the high court, ProPublica found. On his Alaska trip, Alito stayed at a commercial fishing lodge owned by this businessman, who was also a major conservative donor. Three years before, that same businessman flew Justice Scalia, who died in 2016 on a private jet to Alaska and paid the bill for his stay. Such trips would be unheard of for the vast majority of federal workers, can confirm, who are barred (laughs) from taking even modest gifts. I couldn't get anything more than $20 for a friend I worked with for her baby shower. Like, (laughs) I would have been, I could have been fired for that. 
Leonard Leo, the longtime leader of the Conservative Federalist Society, attended and helped organize the Alaska fishing vacation. I thought he'd pop up. Leo invited Singer to join, according to a person familiar, and asked Singer if he and Alito could fly on the billionaire's jet. Leo had recently played an important role in the justice's confirmation to the court. Singer and the lodge owner both were major donors to Leo's political groups. ProPublica sent Alito a list of detailed questions last week. And on Tuesday, the Supreme Court's head spokeswoman told ProPublica that Alito would not be commenting. Several hours later, the Wall Street Journal published an op-ed by Alito responding to ProPublica's questions about the trip. Alito said that when Singer's companies came before the court, the justice was unaware of the billionaire's connection to the cases. I just didn't even know. He said he recalled speaking to Singer on no more than a handful of occasions, and they never discussed Singer's business or issues before the court. Alito said that he was invited to fly on Singer's plane shortly after the trip and that the seat would have otherwise been vacant. Hmm. He defended his failure to report the trip to the public, writing that the justices commonly interpreted that disclosure requirement to not include accommodations and transportations for social events. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, if I didn't have that seat on the private jet, just it, just nobody would have gotten No to one would it. have gone. I couldn't afford not to go. In a statement, a spokesperson for Singer told ProPublica that Singer did not organize the trip and he wasn't aware that Alito would be on it. Singer, quote, never discussed his business interests with the justice. Well, we just talked about fish. Adding that uh, at the time of the trip, neither Singer nor his companies had any pending matters before the court. Of course not. Nor could Mr. Singer have anticipated in 2008 that a subsequent matter would arise. It was a decades-long battle. Leo did not respond to questions about organizing the trip, but said in a statement that he would never presume to tell Alito and Scalia what to do. <laughs> There's a lot more to this report. I recommend you check out ProPublica's reporting. You can just Google ProPublica Alito and it'll come up. And you know, they've had a really great series uh, so far on Scalia and Thomas as well. Thank goodness. And I just want to again give it up for Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson for actually reporting the gifts that she received from anyone even if it was just flowers from Oprah. Well done. Hmm. All right, next up, this is from the Washington Post. More corruption for you. This is from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's wealthy donors and supporters. Well, they lent a golf simulator to the governor's mansion and provided private flights to fundraisers and other political events. That's according to records obtained by the Washington Post. The golf simulator came from Maury Hosseini, a major home builder who chairs the University of Florida's Board of Trustees and lent the device to the governor's mansion in DeSantis's first year in office. That's according to documents that have been released to the Post in response to a public records request. DeSantis, who is an avid golfer apparently, has made his, quote, blue-collar roots a key part of his appeal as a Republican candidate for president and has faced some criticism for his interactions with donors. Oh, boy. DeSantis' security cleared two employees of Ohio-based About Golf to enter the governor's mansion in June of 2019 to install the golf simulator. And that's according to an email released to the Post. About Golf simulators that require installation are typically built to fit a specific space. And they start around $27,500. And that's according to listing by Precision Sports. Man of the people. Well, just wait. Curved screen versions, they start at almost $70,000. Yeah. An executive about golf declined to comment for this article. Yeah, I bet. In an emailed statement, DeSantis spokesman Jeremy Redfern said, quote, as with all donations, it was accepted and coordinated by staff and approved by legal counsel. 
Donations to the residents and grounds have been received over many administrations. It will remain in the state's possession for the use of first families, their guests, and staff as it is now. Now, one of the letters that was received, it didn't explain the rationale for approving the loan of the golf simulator. The ethics manual of the executive office of the governor says employees may not accept a benefit of any sort when a reasonable observer could infer that the benefit was intended to influence a pending or future decision of the employee or to reward a past decision. But the Florida Ethics Commission has in the past evaluated the propriety of gifts that are made to government agencies with more nuance, if you will, a little more lenience. Now, the governor's mansion is overseen by an eight-member commission under the Department of Management Services. In a 2013 opinion, the State Ethics Commission said that when a public official maintained control and access over a donation, it counted as an impermissible gift to the office. But where a governmental agency controlled the donation, it would be considered a permissible gift to that agency. An ethics commission analysis would probably depend on who besides DeSantis had access to the golf simulator, and that's according to Caroline Clanky. She's the executive director of a not-for-profit Florida Ethics Institute and a former general counsel and deputy executive director for the Florida Ethics Commission. Now, disclosures obtained through Florida's open records laws also showed a treadmill donated on January of 2023. This was for the governor's cabana, where the golf simulator was located. Now, the source of the treadmill was not named on record released to the Post. In addition to the cabana furnishings, DeSantis has taken private flights on planes provided by donors. And that's according to campaign finance disclosures and former aides who spoke on the condition of anonymity for fear of retaliation. Such political contributions are permitted under Florida law and must be disclosed. That's the big part. This year, DeSantis set up his presidential bid by introducing himself as, quote, blue collar, salt of the earth, someone who was given nothing, entitled to nothing. Ron DeSantis can't be bought, tweeted Dave Vasquez, and he's a spokesman for the pro-DeSantis super PAC. Never back down. Well, now DeSantis' travel records includes those from past trips, They are exempt from public records requests under a law he signed in May, citing security concerns. Oh. Look at that. Hmm. So he uh, shut down the open records law. Hmm. Interesting. I tell you what, he's a piece of shit, but he is getting, when I say getting stuff done, like anything that benefits him or seems to cover up anything sketchy, this guy seems to be getting the legislation signed. Yep. Yeah, he sure does. Ma'am. Wow, corruption everywhere. All right, next up from our friend Ryan Riley at NBC. Donald Trump supporter who was who drove a stun gun into the neck of Officer Fanon, who was abducted by the mob during the January 6th attack on the Capitol, shouted, Trump won after being sentenced to 12 and a half years in prison on Wednesday. Daniel D.J. Rodriguez, a California man who traveled to D.C. with fellow Trump supporters who belonged to a telegram group called the Patriots 45 MAGA Gang. Super creative. He pled guilty in February to a felony conspiracy, obstruction of an official proceeding, tampering with documents or proceedings, and inflicting bodily injury on officers using a deadly or dangerous weapon. Quote, there will be blood, he wrote in the MAGA gang telegram chat. All I can hear is Inigo Montoya, there will be blood. There will be blood tonight. On the night of January 5th, just hours before attending Trump's rally at the White House Ellipse the next day, welcome to the revolution, he said. On January 6th, after joining the fight in the Capitol's Lower West Tunnel, that's some of the most egregious violence took place. 
Rodriguez attacked Officer Mike Fanone, pulled him out, tased him in the neck, later bragging about his actions on Telegram. He said, oh, my God, I did so much fucking shit right now and I got away. That's what he wrote in his Patriots 45 MAGA gang. He said, I tased the fuck out of the blue. Whoa. Yeah. Federal prosecutors wanted Rodriguez to spend 14 years in federal prison, an upward departure from his sentencing guidelines. His sentencing guidelines were actually eight to 10 years, saying that Rodriguez committed an act of terrorism. Rodriguez's egregious conduct displayed a clear intent, quote, to stop Congress from certifying the results of the election and was calculated to stop the peaceful transfer of presidential power for the first time in the nation's history. That's what prosecutors argued, calling Rodriguez's efforts a quintessential example of an intent to influence government conduct through intimidation or coercion. Fanon told CNN's Jake Tapper he was satisfied with the 12 and a half year sentence. I reached out to my friends earlier today to find out, you know, what his thoughts were. I saw him uh, later today on on Jake Tapper saying he's happy with the sentence. It's a good sentence, a good long sentence. And it's good. he thinks he's, he thinks justice has been served. So that is who I was most worried about today. And so that is very good to hear. That is indeed. All right, you ready? All right, here we go. (laughs) This is from the Daily Beast. The messy feud between two of MAGA world's biggest stars. I would like to take issue, by the way, with those two words at the start of this story. MAGA world's biggest stars burst into public view on Wednesday when Marjorie Taylor Greene called (laughs) Lauren Boebert a little bitch to her face on the floor of the the U.S. House of Representatives. The angry exchange came as two lawmakers have been swiping at each other over their competing resolutions to impeach President Joe Biden. But tensions came to a head on Wednesday after Boebert leveraged a procedural tool to force a vote on her own impeachment resolution within days undercutting Green, who had offered her own resolution, but not with the procedural advantages of forcing the vote. Mm. Okay, so Green apparently cursed out Boebert while the House was voting Wednesday afternoon as the two spoke in a center aisle of the House floor. Part of their interaction was captured on C-SPAN's cameras. Mm. Yep. now according to two sources that saw the exchange and a third familiar with the matter, the back and forth began when Boebert approached Green, then seated in the chamber. They were both there. Green was seated and Boebert confronted her over, and I quote, statements you made about me publicly. All three of the sources said Green called Boebert a bitch. One of the sources said Green called her a little bitch. According to two... Sorry. (laughs) According to two of the sources, Green then stood up and alleged that Boebert copied my articles of impeachment, to which the Colorado lawmaker fired back that she hadn't even read Green's resolution. Keep your eyes on your own impeachment paper, That's right. I donated to you. I've defended you, but you've been nothing but a little bitch to me, Green told Boebert, according to a source who witnessed the exchange. And you copied my articles of impeachment after I asked you to, to, to co-sponsor them. Now, the name calling was confirmed by another GOP lawmaker and another source who witnessed the exchange. This was the source. I heard Marjorie call Boebert a bitch right to her face at one GOP lawmaker that said granted anonymity by the Daily Beast to speak freely about the argument. Okay, Marjorie, we're through. That's what Boebert then said, shrugging her shoulders. With Boebert's back turned, Green responded, we were never together. Mm. Reach for comment about the exchange. Boebert didn't deny the back and forth. Marjorie is not my enemy. I came here to protect her children and their posterity. I would like her to to find posterity, by the way. Joe Biden and the Democrats are destroying our country. That's what she told the Daily Beast and ended with, my priorities are to correct their bad policies and save America. (sighs) As for her part, when asked about their exchange, Green told the Daily Beast, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. 
<sighs> yeah. Earlier in the day, Green said she had long championed articles of impeachment against Biden and strongly suggested Boebert is late to a push that she herself already owns. It's my idea. I know. I was going to impeach the president. This is another quote. Lauren Boebert never addressed the conference, Green said. I made it clear to conference that I have introduced articles of impeachment literally since Joe Biden's first day in office. Oh my and God. then she went on to say, I've been talking about it with everybody forever. Green continued. Everybody forever. Literally everyone forever till I'm blue in the face. You see me? I'm blue in the face. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, it's just magic. Little bag of rats, fighting bag of rats, fight, 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 fight. Oh, these things. This is, you can't sit with us. I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, I have to laugh because otherwise I would cry. I mean, this is the U.S. House of Representatives. A hundred percent. I agree with you. I mean, this, it's embarrassing. These are, these are congressional representatives in the United States House. Ugh. And you're a bitch. You stole my impeachment articles. You're a little bench. We were never together. I've always supported you. We were never together. Mm, uh, like, it's it's just, um, it's really sad that, it, yeah. that it's come to this. Uh, I, I just don't even know what else to say. The, the, it's egregious behavior, and um, they both get what they deserve. And, I'm, and, you know, Matt Gates is now under ethics investigation in the House again because he's being a little bitch, quote unquote. I mean, could you imagine Ted Cruz calling Maxine Waters a little bitch? Like, it would never fucking happen. These people are lunatics. I don't know. I could. But yeah, no, probably not. Um, ugh, yeah, I, 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 again, I'm speechless. I said Ted Cruz. I meant Ted Lou. Oh, oh, I got gotcha. That makes more sense. I'm going to correct myself. I'm sure someone was already listening to this and they hit their computer. And then now you don't have to correct me. I <laughs> like it. They would be like Ted Lou calling Maxine Waters a little bitch. It's never going to happen. No. Right. I think the worst we've done is when uh, Rep Cohen showed up when Bill Barr didn't turn up to testify and he put a bucket of chicken. Yeah. In the seat. Like I was like, all right, that's a little childish, but funny. Yeah. We do get childish, but they are really going after their own, and I'm here for it. That's fine with me. Yeah. I just wish it didn't have to happen in our government. That's just embarrassing. It really is. You're right. I think that's the best word for it. All right. I'm going to be talking with Megan Cuniff. She's an independent reporter. She's covering the Eastman hearings. You're going to want to listen to that interview. It's right after this break. Stick around. After these messages, we'll be right back. All right. First up, as we all know, John Eastman's disbarment hearing, well, potential disbarment hearings have begun in California. And joining us to discuss today is somebody who's covering them live. She's an independent journalist. She's with LegalAffairsAndTrials.com. Please welcome Megan Cuniff. Hi, Megan. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I know we wanted to talk yesterday. We kind of got a little bit waylaid because the proceedings ran late, but I'm so glad to have you today. Tell us, I mean, Listeners know sort of what the general overview is and why Eastman is facing disbarment. They know about the Judge Carter ruling. So tell us a little bit about the sort of your top line view of the hearing so far. We're in day two and some of the standout moments. 
So this has been all Eastman all the time up until just this morning when Greg Jacob took the stand remotely from Washington, D.C., and he's going to be back this afternoon for continued cross. But, you know, this was Eastman's chance to basically explain himself to the judge. He was answering questions from the prosecutor about the the research that he did or didn't do regarding this and whether he'd read certain things with the prosecutor making trying to make the point that this was should have been obvious to him that there was no legal basis to the theories that he was pushing and he basically should have known better and and did know better so it's it's eastman's chance it's almost like an intellectual debate for eastman up on the stand it's his chance to try to show off his knowledge about this stuff and try to catch uh discrepancies in the questioning and and one thing he's really focused on is when they talk about the 66,000 unregistered underage voters uh, voting in Georgia versus when the he says, oh, the figure was actually 2,000. Trumpeted that figure, and then later they realized that, oh, he transposed a number or something. This was Brian Gill. Eastman is really focused on the fact that he thinks people are misinterpreting what the report originally said. He says there's a difference between underage voters actually voting in the election and then underage voters being registered to vote. So he's really focused on that, which kind of seems to be overall missing the point about these really wrong figures being pushed out, but he's been able to focus on that. And one thing that the, that led to was the prosecutor pointing out that Eastman himself has said that. He he is kind of criticizing the prosecutor for at one point kind of mixing the two up, but it turns out Eastman himself in testimony said, oh, 66,000 underage voters voted in the election. So he was doing the same thing. So it's it's a lot of kind of sparring like that that we've seen. Yeah. And I remember one of the emails that had to be handed over, you know, piercing attorney client privilege under the crime fraud exception when Judge Carter was looking at, you know, stuff that had to be handed over to the January 6th committee. One of those emails was Eastman saying that, you know, the president, he was advising against Donald Trump signing off on some of those Georgia numbers in one of those lawsuits that was filed in Georgia, saying that we have gotten some other information that shows that those numbers aren't accurate. And he may be speaking about the, you know, the couple of uh, research firms that, that Donald Trump paid to go out and look for voter fraud and they came back and found none. And so a lot of that inaccurate information ended up in the lawsuit and signed off under penalty of perjury anyhow. And Eastman was warning against that. There's emails for that. And this sort of reminds me of the the sanctions hearings for the strike force in Michigan when, you know, they were told like these pleadings that you have, Sidney Powell and holler and Rudy Giuliani and everything. Did you even bother to check? Do you know what an elector is? Did you even bother to check on the validity or the veracity of any of the claims made by any of these affiants, uh, you know, affidavit signers? Did you bother to 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 check on that? And they were like, oh, well, no, you know, and so they ended up with sanctions slapped on them and some of them referred for disbarment hearings in, in other states. And we've been f- kind of following those along as well. But That's sort of just exactly what this reminds me of, that, you know, if he's hit with sanctions or disbarment, that his pleadings were just absolutely not researched at all. And he just doesn't have an argument for why they weren't. Exactly. There's been a lot of I don't recall. And Carlin, the state bar prosecutor, has brought up certain things that came up and that completely refuted what the theories that 
Eastman is pushing and he said, you know, did you see these? Did you see that? And Eastman's response yesterday was, oh, well, about that time I had a 104 degree uh, fever. So I was I was <laughs> overcome with that. It's like, oh, that sounds like COVID. But he uh, he he was basically just saying he was too sick to see the information that was refuting what he said. But then uh, another thing was uh, Carly. Well, Carly you're too sick yeah. to do something. Sorry to interrupt, but you don't put sign your name to it if you. If you're, yeah. you know, fever delusions. Yeah. And especially because on the one hand, he's presenting himself as this, you know, well-researched scholar who's looking into this debate. There's so much public interest in this unsettled debate. And and I think Carling's trying to make the point that this actually was not an unsettled debate. They've said that, you know, this is the most hotly contested election in, in history, but it's almost like a, a, a made up hot contest through this own information that they misinformation that they were peddling. So one point Eastman brought up was, well, I've never seen a case where there isn't an expert on both sides because they had this Brian Geel guy who made the accidental uh, 66,000 versus 2000 report. And then this was in the Trump versus Kemp case in Georgia. And of course, uh, Georgia had a report declaration from a professor at MIT that completely refuted everything. And the prosecutor was saying, you know, this was filed on January 4th. It was like, Mr. Eastman, did you read this before you went into your Oval Office meeting with, with Trump? And he just said, well, I I've never been in litigation where there isn't experts on both sides. So there's this attempt to legitimize these experts that another person who's watching the proceeding told me, she said, he said, I don't know if Judge Roland knows what's what's coming here because Eastman is prepared to call some really fringe people on election issues. And he's just presenting them as as experts. Oh, well, it's just another opinion. And I, I'm wondering how that's going to come across to the state bar judge if it's just, you know, oh, it's, I was just advocating a, an opinion that other people share or other people agree with me. It's like, well, does she understand or is it going to be able to have the point made that these are really, really fringe people? But also, does it does it matter? They're kind of making the point that, you know, we're we're kind of moving this fringe fringe idea into the into the mainstream and legitimizing it through. Oh, well, there's a court declaration. It's an expert, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, that you're you're the lawyer. You're supposed to decide the veracity of those claims and, and you know, put your name on stuff under, you know, penalty of perjury. So it, I find it fa- like that's just like the will Tom Fitton told me I could keep the classified documents. Well, you know, maybe don't listen to Tom Fitton. Yeah. But that was one of Trump's modus operandi's, right, was to fire anyone and not listen to anyone and keep everyone out of the loop who disagreed with him, which was basically everybody except these fringe players. So was it Greg Jacob, you said, that that's coming back on the stand this afternoon from from D.C.? Yeah, he's got cross-examination at at 2.30, and, and that should be we good. good. We heard uh, Carling went through uh, the meetings before January 6th and then what he was actually doing on, on January 6th. But, of course, Carling's point was that Greg Jacob had, had researched all this stuff, and he said that it was pretty clear to Pence going into this that he did not have the unilateral power to stop anything. And, and Greg Jacob said that he he thinks the constitutional, our, fa- our founders, factored that into the Constitution and did that intentionally to not put it all in one building, to put it all in one vote that you could just dismantle the presidential election. And he basically said because they anticipated something like January 6th happening. Yeah. And one of the things that Pence did not have to testify to the grand jury investigating January 6th about was a memo, I think, that Greg, Greg Jacob wrote that said, no, Pence, you don't have the authority 
to do this. Um, now that, I, you know, because of a speech or debate clause and he was acting in his role as a legislator that day, Pence didn't have to talk about that memo. But he also, you know, says in his book, like, look, we, you know, I called I called Dan Quayle and <laughs> asked him if I could do, you know, so you don't know the pressure that I'm under and stuff like that. So it's 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 interesting that none of those conversations, however, of anybody, including Eastman, asking him or anybody else to do things outside of the bounds of the law, uh, ultra virus or outside of the bounds of your role as a legislator that day, Mike Pence, are not protected by any privilege, honestly. And Eastman well knows that, given that so many of his emails were handed over after the attorney-client privilege was pierced for crime fraud exception with Judge Carter. Has the Judge Carter ruling come up a bit, quite a bit in in these hearings? It it has not been mentioned, but they did bring up a document from that. So I I did have to tweet out because they've got the case number displayed on the document. So it's got Carter's initials in it because they've got all the judge's initials in the case number. So you see the DOC up there. But no, he has not been mentioned in person. But afterward, uh, Eastman did take questions from reporters. And I asked him, you know, if he if he could say anything to Judge Carter, what would he say? And he just said that, you know, he thinks Judge Carter's ruling was clearly erroneous. And he did remind me of the writ petition they've got into the Supreme Court, which actually, when I looked that up, I saw the January 6th committee's response is due tomorrow. So that will be interesting to read and also interesting to see how the court acts on that, whether they they review it. He's got a writ of mandamus into the SCOTUS for Carter? Yeah, yeah. You know, I actually missed that. I did get reported, uh, I think in April he filed the notice, and then recently he's filed his brief. But yeah, the January 6th committee's response is due. So yeah, he's trying to get Carter's Carter's ruling overturned on that, and it focuses on... Uh, I just was bringing back some memories of the Ninth Circuit and the appeal that he did, and then accidentally including the Dropbox file with all the documents that he was trying to keep from us. And, he, and so the Ninth basically, basically said that mooted the issue and blamed him for it. But he's yeah, he's gone to, to SCOTUS on that. But uh, they ended Greg Jacobs' exam, the direct exam, by bringing up an op-ed that uh, Washington Post had eventually published. Uh, he Apparently, Greg said that he started writing it while he was in hiding at the Capitol building, uh, just laying into Eastman in this in this whole January 6th thing. And he never published it, but Washington Post got a hold of it. And in there, he makes the point that he thought this was uh, an embarrassment to the profession. And and he said that, testified that to Judge Rowland, that, you know, he thought this brought embarrassment to the to the legal profession. So that was pretty strong stuff for a, a state bar hearing. But, you know, I'm just wondering how I, I think a lot of it depends on these experts and uh, some of the people that Eastman's going to call. How do they come across? on the stand or in their remote testimony to Judge Roland? And is it going to be clear that, you know, these people are totally fringe or are they going to come across all right? Because we just got to remember that most of the cases she deals with are the bottom of the barrel California attorneys. These are people ripping off their clients. The the pretrial hearing before Eastman's pretrial hearing was a guy in trouble for employing uh, a disbarred attorney. And Roland had, uh, Judge Roland had scolded him because apparently the disbarred attorney tried to appear at the hearing as an attorney. I mean, it was just, <laughs> these are bottom of the barrel people. So she's used to attorneys stealing from their clients and really doing kind of flagrant stuff. So I'm wondering how this is going to come across to her when, you know, is it is it just going to be some far right guy with some pretty kooky legal theories? But as long as he wasn't, you know, ripping off President Trump's uh, client trust fund account, he'll be fine. You know, I I don't know. It, it'll be interesting to see where they come down on this. 
And it's, you know, like Greg Jacob, the super deep state Democrat, you know, lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm being sarcastic there. But anyway, everybody, make sure you follow Megan Cuniff on Twitter. She's she's live tweeting a lot of this. And also, we're going to look forward to your reporting on the January 6th committee's reply to Eastman's writ of mandamus to Scotus. Yeah, that'll be good. That'll be good. I'm interested to see. Very, very interesting. And so uh, make sure that you follow her. Where can, what, what is your uh, Twitter handle, Megan? Megan Cuniff, M-E-G-H-A-N-N-C-U-N-I-F-F. And then I've also got a, a website. I'm doing the uh, Substack paid subscription thing. Your your subscriptions support my independent journalism, but I've got legalaffairsandtrials.com. So you can read all my work there. I'm going to have a story tomorrow morning, kind of summing up the first two days of the hearing here. Oh, I look forward to that. All right. So independent reporter, legalaffairsandtrials.com. Everybody follow her on Twitter and check out her sub stack. It's been really great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Hopefully we'll have you back again when this is all over. Megan Cuniff. Thank you so much. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Good news, everyone. Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, you want to play What the Mutt, frog orgy photos, baby pictures. Dana's here today. She loves the baby photos. Yes, I do. Um, If you have a, let's see, a shout out to a local business in your area or your business or a loved one, somebody you just like, a you know, a little Daily Beans hero that you want to tell us about, uh, an adoptable pet in your area if you can't pay pod pet tax, uh, whatever you want to send to us, you can do it at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. First up from Graham, pronouns he and him. Hey, bean ladies. (laughs) I'm writing to Dana. Hi, Graham. Because I had a shiver come up my spine when Hummingbird Music Camp was mentioned recently on the show. I'm about 10 years older than you, so we probably didn't overlap there, but I went to Hummingbird from ages 8 to 18, at first for piano, then added string bass, and later on, staff played guitar, and finally, as counselor, started taking beginning band or flute, clarinet, trumpet, oboe, and bassoon. Good Lord. Nice job, Graham. A one-man orchestra. That decade was an amazing part of my life, but it's also really peculiar for me. I grew up in Las Cruces, and as you well know, Hummingbird is at the other end of the state from there. Nobody in my hometown went to camp there, and basically nobody else I knew in my real life had even heard of Hummingbird. It's a weird kind of fever dream of existence for me. I lived out a couple of weeks or a month at a time. One where I was entirely divorced from everything else, I was free to explore, incorporate, discover, fail, and succeed in a way that was deeply impactful to me as a person. Ah, so once he was divorced from everything else, I get it. Because I don't have anyone else in my life that I've shared this with, I haven't kept up with people from 40-odd years ago, the entire experience might as well have been a fairy book I invented insofar as actually sharing it with anyone else goes. So it's pretty amazing to hear Hummingbird mentioned on your show and to hear you attended there. Uncle Lloyd and Aunt Wanda and the really bizarre, magical separation from the real world they created, one where music reigned supreme above all, is something I will treasure having experienced all my life. If for nothing else, all the afternoon free time sing-alongs I play piano for in the lounge, which all developed eventually into the Jesus Christ Superstar score. Yes. Thanks for the work you're doing. I'm a relatively new listener, but you're both keeping me sane. Aw. It's a great submission. I just have to say, not to elongate this part of it, but Graham, I went when I was from when I was eight to when I was 18 too. And the way you described it is beautiful. It also came for me with a lot of struggles. There was some dark parts of that camp. And I, I'm, I don't want to 
ruin anyone's experience of it, but there were some hard things happened. And uh, when I was a, a counselor, I saw a lot of it because I was old enough to see it. But it was a magical place. I still have friends from there 40 years later. And, you know, I learned how to play the drums. It got me through high school. I, I won awards. And it was a it was an incredible experience that I, I hold very dear to me. But he's right. We were there from like a week, between a week to two weeks. If you were a counselor, you went for a month. And I started off as a camper, ended up as a head counselor for a short period of time before I got kicked out. And that is a story for another time. Mm. But Graham, I'm so glad you have such sweet memories of this place because it was very impactful for probably hundreds of thousands of kids. I mean, it was it was amazing. I hope somebody like puts together a, like a, a a Daily Beans like hummingbirds group somewhere in, on a social media site. I think that'd be fun. That would be cool. There is a hummingbird music camp uh, site on Facebook. Um, I don't want to get into it because it's got such a negative thing. But there was someone involved in the family that after they died, there was a 23 and Me and his DNA was found guilty in a rape case. And so unfortunately the Facebook page has been taken over and sort of shut down based on that case, which to be honest with you, and I don't know if anyone else listening went to hummingbird. I think we would all agree that this particular individual gave us all the creeps and all of us were a hundred percent correct on our intuition. That's all I'll Mm. have to say. Yep. Yeah. And that shouldn't destroy anyone's good times at that. Exactly. Place. Exactly. All right. Do you want to take the next two? I'm happy to. And listen, you know, I'm a dog person, but this kitty is beautiful. I know. All right. This is from Beverly. No pronouns given. Love your podcast. I recently moved to Prunedale, aka Pruntucky, and I'm surrounded by oak trees, horses, goats, my five cats. Here's a photo of my two-year-old Tonkinese. This is Mm. Hannah. And Mm. Hannah is gorgeous. She is. She looks like she knows it too. <laughs> I think so too. And I think that maybe we got the couch to match her eyes, but we uh, don't know. I would. Really good. All right. This next one's from Jim, pronouns he, him. Hello, lovely ladies of the legumes. I wanted to share some really good news concerning my daughter. After graduating with a degree in music and theater, Ooh. minoring in art, she decided to join an AmeriCorps program called Artist Year. Now, Artist Year volunteers teach music and art in urban school systems. She taught at 5 through K school in Northeastern Philly. The program wrapped up last week. She just received a nice cert for successful completion and was informed she won an award for her performance. She received a $6,000 stipend for grad school. That's awesome. We are so proud of of this caring human that she's become. Below is our other child, three and a half year old Luna. She runs our household. She tells us when it's time to get up in the morning and herds us, hint, when it's time for bed. All right. I start my day five days a week with the beans. Keep up the amazing work. And this does look like, um, yep. Oh, is this a... Yeah, it is. Yeah. There's okay. definitely a, sh- a shepherd in there. Yeah. And I would say... Lab? Lab shepherd? Yeah. Maybe boxer? a Vichla or a, maybe a Rhodesian Ridgeback? Little boxer. Definitely and... some chow chow. Oh, for sure. And a, a beagle. I, I, yeah. I just made that up. I don't know how tall she is. All right. Let's see. Ah, German shepherd dog and... Treeing Walker Coonhound. Okay. Oh. So I guess that is a dog that specifically chases raccoons up trees. There you have it. <laughs> They're very good at. <laughs> Next up from Karen, pronouns she and her. Hi, wonderful beans queens. Everyone who listens to this podcast knows well the healing power of animals. So I'd like to share a story about my daughter. She has struggled with addiction for many years. About six years ago, she walked into a no-kill shelter and asked for the least adoptable cat they had. Karen, I've done that. That's how I ended up with Bruce Willis. 
They brought her to an isolated area that housed a single cat who had been taken off the streets of Metro Detroit. He was uh, FIV positive, missing a lot of hair, and whom she later found out had a permanent buckshot embedded in his body. Goodness. He also had an eye infected and swollen shut that required surgery to repair. She adopted this cat and paid for his surgeries and vet bills with her own money, placing his needs above her addiction. My daughter has always been an animal lover and an advocate, donating thousands of dollars to the shelter where she adopted her rescue, whom she credits with saving her life. This one's going to get me. Oh, honey. My daughter is now four years and seven months clean and sober with a wonderful man, also a cat rescuer, and five years clean and sober. They met in recovery and helped each other through a couple of relapses when they first met, taking care of each other's cats during rehabs. I'm beyond proud of my incredible daughter, the strongest woman I've ever known, a fighter and a survivor, just like her cat, whom she calls pure soul, as she refers to all animals on earth. Keep up the wonderful work you do. Your podcast makes me both laugh and cry. Me too. And in this time, when the world seems so hard and dark, you remind us daily that humanity is more often good and kind and pretty damn wonderful. Oh, what a beautiful submission. And again, this this first kitty, this picture is gorgeous. Absolutely Hi, gorgeous. I Such am. a sweet baby. Mm. What a great story. I love that. Yeah, I was I I was at a no kill shelter. I said, show me the cat that's been here the longest. And they led me to Bruce Willis. And, oh. Yeah. Bruce Willis and boobs saved my life a few times over. So I I, I understand Karen. And this is amazing. What a great, incredible warrior doing such good work. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing all of your stories with us. Send your stuff in, please, at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. Do you have any... Are you with us tomorrow, Dana? I am with you tomorrow. Ooh, we if get to you go would like to weekend. have me, I know. I would love to. Um, always, yeah, whenever you're available. Always. <laughs> yeah, I will be here and I'm, I'm going to be here for... I don't think I have any days off for the next week and a half or so, which is wonderful. Oh, my goodness. Um, Speaking of days off, August 1st through August 6th, I believe, that week, that very first week of August, Mm -hmm. uh, Daily Beans is going to take a hiatus. We'll be putting out best of shows and bloopers and stuff. But um, that is the week that the the court in Fulton County will be on break. So I was like, that's a good time to take a break. (laughs) If, If the Fulton County court is on break. That's a good time to take a break. Of course, that probably means that some other indictments will happen somewhere else. But um, that is our um, that is our one summer break. We wanted to squeeze it in so we could give everybody a little bit of time off. I just wanted to give everybody a heads up. There still will be stuff going out. Patrons, you'll get the updates and I'll be talking to you behind the scenes while we're off. If you want to become a patron and stay up uh, up on the news that week from behind the scenes, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash Miller She Wrote. Thank you to our patrons also. You guys make all of this possible, all y'all. Uh, do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here before tomorrow? No, not for today. No, but think of a good one for tomorrow. I definitely mm. will. You have my word. I'll have a final thought tomorrow. I'm going to ask. All right, cool. Everybody will be back tomorrow. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q. And take someone with you. I've been AG. And I've been DG. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. 
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.